All right, we've made it. We're on the final church, the last of the seven churches. You want to turn in your Bibles? We'll finish up chapter 3. We'll pick up at verse 14. And this final church period, and it began really effectively around 1900. It continues to this day, and this is, of course, the church of our day and time. This is the one that represents uh, best, most closely, the church that's in the world, even as we sit here tonight. It is that church of Laodicea. It's a, a very fashionable church. It was a very uh, materialistic or a very wealth-oriented church, and it is, of course, our present-day church. It's interesting how people define church, and as you look at the world today, so very often churches are defined more by what they possess than who possesses them. They're defined more by the edifice of the building than they are by the people, which is really the church. They're defined more by the character of the accoutrements than they are those who are the worshipers. And in fact, very frequently, as is the case in our day and time, the church is actually not defined by the Lord Jesus and certainly not his word, but it's defined by a set of dictums that are laid down principally to maintain assets to store up treasures on this earth rather than in heaven. And I think the church in America is most guilty of this. The church in much of the rest of the world still is persecuted sufficiently that their assets and the things that God's entrusted to them in a sense of stewardship are used far more wisely. Family of God as we look at our church, this church, uh, we are blessed beyond measure. We are supposed to use those blessings for the furtherance of the kingdom. And that kingdom is not of this earth. It is the kingdom of heaven. And though it's wonderful to have all of these things, if at the end of the day, Having these things produces a lukewarmness in us. If it causes us to be so comfortable that we refuse to get out of our comfort zone and back into the battle, then we, like the church at Laodicea, have missed the boat. And so tonight, the fashionable church, the materialistic church, the church of the very last days, the church that exemplifies the church that will be around when we finally hear the trumpet of the Lord, the church at Laodicea. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we gather tonight in this wonderful, comfortable, uh, beautiful sanctuary, God, we think of our brothers and sisters all over the world uh, meeting on the dirt floor of a mud hut. Or to think of our brother Sanderson there in Zambia. Father, I think of those that are in the favelas of Brazil, Lord, in the small little communities all over the country of Mexico, Lord, who have so very little when we have so much. And Lord, we pray tonight 
that you would speak your truth into our lives. God, may we never be guilty of becoming lukewarm. Would we never, ever take for granted the goodness that you've given us. And God, may that goodness go out into this world in marvelous ways. God, would we be that support system for the churches that don't have because we do have. Lord, would you cause us to speak forth your truth, not just in, in word, but in deed. God, would you bless us as we study your word. We turn our attention now to it, for it is life. We ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Verse 14 here in the third chapter of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of creation of God. And so again, gives himself a moniker at the beginning of the letter that describes who it is that's speaking. And I think it's marvelously interesting that he chooses now to reiterate, look, I was here before, I'm going to be here after, I've always been faithful, my witness has always been true, and I was in fact the one who began this whole process, for he is the creator God. And so the Lord Jesus says to the last church, look, I birthed the church. More than that, I birthed the universe. I birthed the planet that you spend your life on. In fact, I made the dirt from which I made you. I know what I'm talking about. And so he speaks forth this truth, for I know your works, and I'll have you notice here early on that he says nothing good about this church. There is no commendation of this church. And that to me is very pathetic. And I don't want to turn this message into a downer, but I think the church needs to take stock of where it stands. Because when the Lord doesn't say anything good about your church, it's not a good thing. When we get our praise from men and not from God, it's not a good thing. We need to seek the praise of our Lord and our Savior. We need to be true to Him. We need to honor Him. And unfortunately, much of the church is more concerned about what the government thinks about them or what other people think about them or, or what a bunch of people who are lost think about them than they do about what God thinks about them. And here in this church, we're concerned with how the Lord sees us. What would the Lord say about the ministry of our church, this church, you and I, personally, privately? Let it not be so that he could say nothing good about us, and I don't believe that he would. But it's easy to get to that place, and nothing will get you quicker than being fat and happy. The church has always prospered, prospered under persecution. The church has always grown when it's been challenged. The church has gotten to the places of greatness as it's been beat down, abused, and oppressed. But when the church hasn't had to work very hard, the church falls asleep. 
And so I wonder if there isn't another round for the last church to go through a time of difficulty because I believe the Lord is looking at the church in the world today, specifically the church in America, saying, what will it take to get us out of our lukewarmness? What will it take to ignite uh, a raging fire underneath the pot of our lives to once again bring us to a boil? And so he says, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. It's a rather tragic statement. They're not the frozen chosen, and they're definitely not the boiling brotherhood. There's basically nothing about them that's worthy of being commended. You know, sometimes people who are are frozen have gotten that way because of persecution. They're just locked up. They don't know what to do. So he says, look, I wish you were hot or cold, cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because... You say, I am rich, become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you do not even know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, what Jesus is referring to is exactly the truths that he illuminates for us in the Beatitudes. And those truths are backwards. They're upside down relative to the world that we live in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll inherit the earth. The Lord was speaking to us a long time ago, saying, look, the world has it wrong, If you want to get it right, you need to do things my way. And the church has always fought with the Lord to some degree on these issues. It seems like the church has always struggled a little bit when they've been prosperous. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments, that you may be clothed, that your shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, you might want to circle that. As many as I love, he still loves this church, still cares for this church. He still has a desire for this church. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And therefore, because he loves us, and because he rebukes us, and because he chastens us, be zealous and repent. Now remember who he's writing to. This is the church, these are believers. And so the classic use of the next verse as a 
verse whereby an invitation is given, though it's proper in one way, it's improper in another because this verse is spoken to Christians already. People who know the Lord. And so its truest and deepest meaning has nothing to do with lost people. It has everything to do with Christ standing outside of the door of the church where Christ is no longer welcome. Where his word is no longer taught. Where once there was a fire and now there is nothing going on. Surely it's true that he stands outside of the door of every human heart, but in context, this is spoken to the church. He's saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. He's talking about wanting to fellowship with the body of Christ. And he's actually outside the church knocking and asking. Now I want you to put this into a modern, can you imagine if the Lord Jesus felt like he needed to knock on the door of the church because the church doors weren't open to Jesus. There are a lot of church doors that are not open to Jesus right now, especially here in America. They're open to all kinds of social issues. They're open to as many programs as we could care to name tonight. They're open to all kinds of reasons to get together. Uh, Let's get together and we'll have a wine tasting and we'll have a beer bash and we'll get together and play bingo. And oh, by the way, the bus leaves for Vegas next week. There's all kinds of reasons why people gather together inside what has been called church. But they're neither hot nor are they cold. Oh, they still throw around the Lord's name. Occasionally somebody takes out a Bible and actually speaks a few words out of it. But you're more likely to hear psychobabble than you are to hear the word of the Lord. And so he's standing outside the door of the church. He wants to come in and fellowship, but he can't fellowship when he's not welcome. And that's true with you, and it's true with me, and it's true with every church. The Lord is saying, will you let me in? Can we fellowship? Let me dine with you. To him who overcomes. And again, you can see the context very clearly. He's speaking to believers. Those are overcomers, amen? That's not a lost person. That's someone who's saved, who's overcoming. He's speaking to the church at Laodicea. People who have a relationship with him. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And also overcame and sat down 
with my Father on His throne. Notice there are two thrones there, not one but two. Where did Jesus sit down? At the right hand of God the Father. Amen? Co-ruling and reigning. Both God, different roles. He who has the ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Again to the churches. This is the seventh and final time. He will not speak to the church again. The seventh and final time. He will not speak to the churches again. With the end of this particular message, he's done speaking to the church age in that sense. Doesn't mean that his word doesn't speak to us yet still, all of it in its entirety. But this special message for this last church, the one that will be prevalent in the final days, the the end of the church's history, if you will, he now says, hear me, this is what I've got to say. And you need to do something. And again, he says, repent. You see, the name Laodicea is an interesting name. It literally means rule of the people. Not shocking, amen? Because if there was anything that were to describe how the church is governed today, it's governed by the people. And so when the people say, well, you know, could you just not preach on sin anymore? You know, we're, we're kind of tired of doctrine. Could you tell us about God's love every single Sunday? Let me tell you something. There's a way to get the love of God in every message. But if every message is about the love of God, and you never tell people that they're sinners who need a Savior, then you have misrepresented God. You have to have both. You have to speak, and we'll get to it this Sunday. You must speak the truth in love. Not just truth without love, and not just love without truth. And the problem with the church in the world today is, they're usually one or the other. They're either hyper-liberal, or they're hyper-conservative. They don't have that balance of speaking truth in love. And so Jesus says, look, you're not hot, you're not cold. You're the rule of the people church. You're a democratic church governed by the will of committees. Can I just tell to you, if you want to ruin vision ever in a church, just give it to a committee. It doesn't mean that some things shouldn't be decided by groups of people who prayerfully consider we do those things all the time. But if you want to ruin something, just put it to a committee and give people power and say, well, whatever you decide very often it ends up in zero happening. Or worse yet, something even worse than what was being considered. You see, what happens is, eventually it becomes about everybody's opinion instead of about what God's Word actually says. We need to do what God's Word says. This particular church would no longer follow spiritual direction. It just simply kind of did its own thing. And that's exactly what you see going on in the church in our world today. The church is basically telling the pastor how to hear from God. And though there are times when I need to be corrected, and I need to receive that correction, nobody hired me. I got called 
And that call came from God. And if I can't hear from God, I'm certainly not going to hear from all y'all. Amen? That's the way it's got to work. In this case, the pastor was a hireling. Well, we don't like that. You need to say something different. You know, tithes are down. We can't afford that new wing. We, we kind of lost, you know, we're not going to be able to afford those gold-plated communion cups we were looking for. I mean, the church barbecue is in grave danger right now. And by the way, I love barbecue. We'll have one of those. But when you have barbecue instead of missionaries, you've got a problem. When you're worried about the comfort of the pews instead of the people in the pews, you have a problem. Again, you can have both, but it's based on God's word and truth, not simply there being a need. Can I tell you something? Alan Redpath was absolutely correct in his commentary on the book of Nehemiah talking about Nehemiah's life, when Nehemiah saw the gates of Jerusalem were burned and the city was in destruction, he saw a need that he did not immediately fulfill. He went back and he prayed. And Alan Redpath said it's one of the most marvelous things that we know about the, the, the wondrous work that Nehemiah did. He was able to see that a need does not necessarily constitute a call. Because there are all kinds of needs all over the world. The question is, are we supposed to do those things? That comes from the Spirit of God. That's how God speaks into our lives. It's not from a spreadsheet. It's not from anything else. It's by the voice of the Lord himself speaking truth into our lives. The apostate church was just really good at organization. still is. There's something wrong when our values and our vestiture, our garments, and our vision are governed by money. Where's the faith? Sometimes you just got to step out in faith, brothers and sisters. I get asked some pretty strange questions every once in a while. And they usually revolve around things that we can or cannot do. And sometimes it's good to look at the finances and go, yeah, maybe we probably shouldn't buy a stadium. But if we can't just simply say, you know what, we believe God's called you into the mission field and we're going to support you and trust God, then we have a problem. Because then we're caring about more, than, more about what's in the bank than we are about doing what God's called us to do. And so he says, we don't want what this church has, which is a huge building, with no Jesus on the inside. In light of that, God's always had a faithful remnant. And if you look back at the history of these churches, as we would, if we could outline all of them, you can kind of see the history of, of, of the Old Testament as it lays out before us. In chapter 2 and verse 7, the first church 
We, we see the, the tree of life. We then see that man's cast out of the garden. We see God's provision in the wilderness. We see the kingdom age uh, of Israel. We see the priestly ministry. We see all these wonderful things, the temple, the glorious throne. These are all pictures of how God has dealt with Israel in the past. And so as we see the church age, it does mirror the Old Testament history. It's not a direct equivalence, but it is certainly visible. And it's one of those wonderful things we can look back and say, you know, the children of Israel had a very wonderful picture. They were able to see, if they cared to look, they were able to see by faith that God was dealing with them the same way he deals with us. We, we too have been asked, are we going to eat of the tree of life? You've had to make a decision for Jesus Christ, amen? The wages of sin is death, amen? He is the bread of life, amen? You see these things? He, it is his kingdom. Thy kingdom come and your will be done. We are priests and kings of the most high God. We're going to one day rule and reign with him. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And one day you're going to sit on a throne with Christ. So the Old Testament pictured, now revealed in the New Testament. They were a faithful remnant. There were people that were still hungry after the things of God. The character of this city was very interesting because it had no permanent water supply. And if you know anything about ancient history, almost without exception, one of the reasons that the city of Jerusalem was so easy to besiege is because it had exactly one water source, and it was the springs of Gahon. And so the springs were actually outside of the city wall. So Solomon uh, digs a tunnel to bring water back into the city, here in Laodicea, the springs that fed this city were actually the springs in Hierapolis, over four and a half miles away. And those springs were hot springs. They bubbled up out of the ground. They're still there today. You can go and see the, the hot springs in Hierapolis. They created an aqueduct. The aqueduct carried that water, those four and a half miles. And by the time it got back to the city... Instead of being boiling hot at 120 degrees as it came out of the ground, it was now lukewarm. And so Atticus, when he named the city, he named it after his wife, Laodice. And so it was known as the city of the Laodiceans. And it was known because the water in the city was lukewarm. The character of the city was its identity. And so it was known as a lukewarm city. It was also a medical center. And it strikes me that four of these churches had some form of the worship of, of the god of medicine, Ascalepus. This was another one. And it does not strike me as odd at all that in our world... We have developed into a country very specifically, but even globally, a, a world that worships medicine. It's insane to me the amount of money and the frequency with which people go to the doctor. Look, I grew up in a day and time where 
Dad still told their son, look, you're going to live, it'll be okay. <laughs> Rub some dirt in it. <laughs> Here, try this castor oil, it'll make you fine. <laughs> or kill you, one of the two. But now every sneeze, we're off to the doctor. And it's for a central purpose. We don't want to feel bad. And I'm not mocking anybody's things. I got things too. But the fact of the matter is we live in a day and time where we're so concerned about our personal health that we forget there's people who are suffering in infinitely greater ways all over the world. In the United States of America, we spend more on plastic surgery than South America does in primary medical care. Ouch. And again, there are times when some of those surgeries are actually beneficial. But this city was trying to prolong life abnormally. And so they worshipped medicine. Look, I'm all for if you got cancer, let's try and cure it. Absolutely, without question. But I think we need to be really careful because there's a very fine line between trying to keep us alive when God's probably said, hey, I actually called you home 10 years ago. <laughs> That's why you look like a zombie. <laughs> you know some of those Hollywood stars I'm talking about. So they would go to the hot springs and soak themselves and go engage in spa treatments. Again, I'm not bagging on health spas. If you go to a health spa, God bless you. But you know what? If you're dumb enough to think that packing mud on your body is going to prolong your life, then you deserve to pay 500 bucks to do it. It is appointed unto man one time to die and then judgment. You're going home when God says so. So worrying about it, stressing over it, trying to look like you're 30 when you're 60. Just go gracefully. <laughs> the barn needs painting, paint it. Okay, that's fine. But now we're eating, you know, free-range whatever... I mean, you go, into, you go into Costco, half the store is dedicated to vitamins now. And dietary supplements. And by the time you take them all, you're going to die from the dietary supplements. <laughs> and then you mix with that kind of the new age thing that's been going on. It, I don't know how many of you have visited Sedona or Santa Fe or someplace where new age is very, very thick. But it's just like everything's healthy this and healthy that. 
I, I got offered in, in Santa Fe a, a, a cup of tea, and I'm like, it was supposed to be some, you know, thing, and this was a number of years ago, and I drank it, it's just like, it was like boiling acid. <laughs> it's supposed to be healthy for you. When Peter saw the vision of all things coming down on the blanket, he says, look, don't call unclean that which the Lord has made clean. I think personally he meant bacon. <laughs> Ham wrapped in bacon <laughs> with a little side of fried chicken. We start worrying about the wrong things. And so he begins to tell us how to fight this fight. And so he talks about himself. First thing he does, he calls himself the Amen. I love that. That's the so be it. Jesus is the so be it of everything. He, he's the beginning and he's the end. He's the one that said, when you say Jesus, you can say so be it. He says, look, this is my message and so be it. The second thing he calls himself is the faithful and the true witness. You know, the Lord's never going to lie to you. And he's always going to be faithful. I was in business. So the last year that I was in business, we'd gone through a whole bunch of things within our family, and it was just it was an absolute mess. And we had some kind of pseudo-business partners. And I thought those pseudo-business partners were also my friend. These were the people that we would go and play golf with and hang out, you know, all those kind of things, things that business people do. And I remember I thought they were faithful. And I remember when they found out that we were going to shut our company down and ultimately would file for bankruptcy protection. They were like vultures on a carcass. Well, yeah, I'll buy that for four bucks, but it cost $11,000. They were not faithful, they were unfaithful. The world is unfaithful. Christ is faithful. His people are supposed to be faithful. He's the only one you can trust. Fully, completely, 100% of the time. He says, look, there's not going to be any change in my character. He wasn't one type of God in the Old Testament, another type of God in the New Testament, and yet another type of God today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? You're not going to wake up and go, wow, I wish you'd have been like that when I was alive. The way the church is going right now, I think that some churches believe that's exactly what's happened. Well, you know, that was then, this is now. I mean, yeah, it was bad in Sodom and Gomorrah, but now that we're doing the same thing, it's not bad anymore. It's no longer sin. Matter of fact, it's not only not sin, it's what God intended from the very beginning. That is a message from the pit of hell. That's where that message came from. That's not tolerance and that's not love. That is you trying to change the character of the unchangeable God. Can't do it. And he won't stand for it. 
Thirdly, he says he's the beginning of the creation of God. Is that trying to say that Jesus was created? Of course it's not trying to say that. What it's saying was he was there at the beginning of creation. Exactly what the book of Colossians declares, he is the preeminent one. Before Abraham was, I am also was. He was there in the beginning. In fact, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's saying, look, I don't change. I am the so be it to everything. And oh, by the way, I was there when this all started. And I'm going to be there when this all ends. The beginning of the creation of God. He created time. He created space. He's the one that put the stars in their orbit. He's the one that organized the galaxies to be where they are right now. We'll get into this more in a, in a week or so on a Sunday night. If you like astrophysics, come out. I'm baiting you a little bit. Monumental what the Lord has done. And he did it with the word of his mouth. He said, stars be and the stars were. Amen? Amen. He said, planets be and the planets were. He didn't need 13.7 billion years to accomplish that. He could do it by speaking it ex nihilo into existence. And the odd thing is, for the astrophysicist, they ultimately agree with that assessment. Because almost without exception, if they're not creationists, they believe in the Big Bang. Which clearly says, in the beginning... In the beginning, they claim there was a seed of the universe. Your Bible simply declares in the beginning, God is the seed of the universe. And by him were all things that were created, created, and without him was nothing created that was created, and all things were created for him and by him. It's pretty simple. You see... Jesus says, look, you believe in gravity, believe in me. It's an interesting argument if you want to talk to your non-Christian friends. Ask them if they believe in gravity. They'll tell you, yeah. And then ask them if they can see it. Well, no. But I can see the effects of it. Exactly. You can't see God, but you can see the effect of him having been here. Notice the dangers of being lukewarm. You see, the, the wealth of a church like Laodicea is, is a deadly danger in and of itself. Those hot springs, prized for their medicinal properties, they blended them with the cold water that came from Colossae, prized for their purity. And so it's a blending of lukewarmness and purity. You can actually see the picture of the church. Well, yeah, we kind of believe that doctrine, but we don't believe this doctrine. And we kind of like that part of the word, but we don't like this part of the word. And, oh, we believe this, but, you know, that's a little bit much for us right now. So we're going to throw that part of the Bible out. Lukewarmness. And on top of that, it was combined with a consumer mentality, a mentality that 
when you really look at it, explains very much what we see in our world today, especially here in America. People are so concerned. I, I mean, it's, it's staggering. It had been a while since I'd been around South Coast Plaza. We were down at the pastor's conference earlier this week, and as, as we're driving by, I'm looking at all the stores, and, you know, and again, not bagging on anybody if you happen to like fancy purses or cars or whatever. I'm not trying to say that at all. But I am saying that when we're more concerned with fancy purses and fancy houses and fancy cars than we are with whether people come to faith in Christ Jesus as the church, I think we've missed the mark. I think when we get caught up in the world's consumerism, when Christians are caught up in that, it's a very dangerous thing. Because when you are like that, you begin to trust in those riches. You remember what Jesus actually said about that very subject? He began by saying, look, it's better that you enter into heaven blind or maimed than to not get in at all. And then he says, look, ultimately, no one can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other no one can serve God and mammon, wealth. When you begin to serve wealth, it becomes very difficult to serve God. And having been in the corporate business world, I can tell you that's absolutely true. Not that everyone falls prey to that. There are wonderful, godly people who are fabulously wealthy and they use their wealth for the kingdom. That's exactly how it should be. That's a wonderful thing. But it is very hard to do. Why? Because you get sucked into the consumerism. You get sucked into the wealth cycle. You get sucked into the very things that are attractive to the world in that area. I'm rich. You know, I don't really need to go to church. I mean, after all, look how much God has blessed me already. I mean, really, I must be actually holy because look at the stuff I have. That is the equivalent. I've actually had people tell me that. Well, if you just look at what I have, I mean, of course God loves me. Can I say to you, that's part of the problem with the church in America. We equate wealth with God's approval. And it's not necessarily so. It can be a sign that God is blessing you, but it can also be a tremendous distraction where you no longer see the things you're supposed to see and are no longer willing to do the things you're supposed to do. And that is the very reason why he says, look, there's a danger to being lukewarm. You're hot. You're cold. You're kind of neither. You, you just, everything's okay. So you're fine right where you're at. It just isn't favorable to God's plan for our lives. It gives you a tepid heart. You know when you're, when you're needy? Isn't it amazing how that drives your thinking every day? You have to cry out to God. You're, you're saying, Lord, unless you step into the picture today, I'm done for. But when things are going really well... I think if we're honest, it's kind of hard to actually think about God when you're on vacation, isn't it? 
It's okay, you can say yes. It is. Why? Because you're self-absorbed in having fun. And it's very different than your normal life, for the most part. Not all the time, not everybody. Not trying to point fingers. But generally speaking, you know, when you're at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, and you meet the Dalai Lama, I guess he was there this week. We, we saw a bunch of guys run around in their saffron robes. When you go to the happiest place on earth, all of that stuff, all of a sudden, well, you know, I guess the fact that we're having a divorce going on in our home right now, it's not that big a deal. I mean, after all, I'm over here with Mr. Lincoln. I'm going on, you know, Mr. Toad's wild ride. So, I mean, this kind of life at times, isn't it? We, we get wrapped up in what's going on in this earth and we forget there are real issues that God wants to address in our lives. Now, having said that, I hope I didn't ruin your, you know, God bless you if you're going to Disneyland this week. Please go and enjoy yourself. I'm not trying to be a cosmic killjoy. I was merely using it as an analogy. I'll get letters from all the Disney people. Well, you could have said Knott's Berry Farm. Yes, okay, Knott's Berry Farm. (laughs) My point is this. When you're engrossed in that much feeding of oneself, when you're ODing on cotton candy and popcorn, you know, it's like when you go into the Blue Bayou restaurant, that is the most expensive piece of horrible prime rib you will ever purchase in your entire life. But you love it because Jack Sparrow's in there with you. It's a picture of the world. And again, notice I didn't say that you can't go there. But it is how the world functions. The world gets us distracted. And all of a sudden we're looking at the little twinkling lights in the ceiling and we're going, oh, it's just fine. I mean, look at this, honey. I mean, isn't that fake butterfly wonderful? all of a sudden you find yourself lukewarm. Interesting word that's used here to vomit. It's actually a Greek word from which we get emetic, which is when you have something wrong with you and they need to make you throw up in a hospital, they give you something like syrup of epicac, which is an emetic, and you take that and it makes you immediately vomit. Lukewarmness makes... Jesus vomit. It is an emetic to him. He would rather that you're hot for sure. He would even rather that you're cold. At least you acknowledge the fact that you're not walking. You're totally backslidden. Not that he wants you to stay that way, but it's actually easier to deal with somebody who's in the pit of despair. Amen? Like in The Princess Bride, the pit of despair. It's easy to deal with someone who's in the bottom of the barrel. They got nowhere to go but up. But the lukewarm person who kind of thinks they're okay? Wow. Jesus is really saying, look, lukewarmness makes me nauseous. 
And he goes on to say, look, you're like the emperor's new clothes. You all know that story. It's an interesting story. It's a great study for this particular set of verses. These verse 17, 18, but you say that I'm rich, I'm wealthy. You're walking around, oh, I'm totally fine. I mean, look. You know, and actually you're streaking. You know, you have no clothes on. You're unclothed. But you think you're fine. Why? You look at your bank account, you look at your cars, you look at all the stuff, and again, nothing wrong with any of those things in their proper place. But when they become the place, they're in the wrong place. When you care more about those things and you care about Christ, look, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. Jesus says, look, you don't even know that you're wretched. You're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You see, you guys don't even see things for the way they are. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine the Lord saying that about our church? God forbid that that would ever happen. There's five marks of being lukewarm here. They're wretched, constantly distressed. You ever met people whose hope is in this world? They freak out over everything. We were, in, we were in Hawaii a number of years ago, and we happened to, we went as a family. It was for my in-law's uh, 50th wedding anniversary, and so we're there with Lee and Billy and the family, and we rented a couple of condos, and we're staying. There's like, I don't know, there's 12 or 13 of us, something like that. And I remember this, just, I'm like, Honey, do you hear that person yelling at the top? It is 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm trying to listen to I love the sound of the surf. It's like, I, that just like knocks me out. And I'm hearing this dude, man, I, I was just yelling and screaming. And I go out there, and the dude is haggling over his stock portfolio on the East Coast at 3 o'clock in the morning. And he's in the Hawaiian Islands. It's like he can't even enjoy the fact that he's in Hawaii. He's screaming about the fact, well, I can't believe I lost that money. Not much you can do about it from there. The markets are closed. Wretched, distressed over material things, trying to keep them up. Been running streams. We have all kinds of people who have mountain cabins. You should hear the arguments of the people who come up to their mountain cabins. There's supposed to be a place where you go recreate and they get there, honey, who, you, you left the water on and now the pipes have blown up. And they're yelling at each other in the middle of the driveway and this is their second or third home. It's like it's from, it's the home from Hades. They're wretched. They're miserable, which means pitiable, by the way. Jesus pitied these people because they didn't even know they were messed up. They're wandering around, they're looking at all this stuff that they have and going, it must be okay with my soul. I mean, look at it. Then he says they're poor. Let me tell you what that word actually means. It means beggarly. They were absolutely, fabulously, actually wealthy. If you check their bank account, they would have been fine. Their bottom line was good. 
but they were beggars because they were still after the things that matter. They didn't have what really mattered. And they were blind. They, they could not see with spiritual eyes. And lastly, they were naked. They were not clothed in righteousness. They were clothed in the things of this world. And that won't keep you clothed when you get to heaven. You need those garments of praise. You need the whiteness of the Lord Jesus. You need the robe that comes from him. You can't clean yourself up. Only he can wash you and make you white as wool. You can't get it any other way. And so it was a deplorable state, and they didn't even know it. It was a cause. It was a condition for pity. And so he tells them, look, hey, it's time for you to spend some dough on the cure. You need to buy the right things. And when we think of this, it's not the way we would think of it. It's not like you need to get some type of currency and go purchase it because the currency is grace. And that grace is a gift. It's given to you. He says, but look, I'll give you the currency so that you can go buy what you need. And what you need is refined gold. You need my character. You need my likeness. And the picture here is in the top of a refining pot. And if you've never seen this, it's just a, the most amazing thing. And as long as it's, a, it's one of the heavier metals like gold or silver, bronze will do it as well, brass. When you melt it, uh, when all the dross comes to the top of the pot and, and you take a rod, you scrape it off, it makes the most amazing mirror finish. It's absolutely radiant. And he's saying, look, if you'll let me refine you, let me make you into fine gold, then you'll reflect me. The world will see me in you. You, you need refined gold. Look, I'll do that for you. You need white garments. Look, those garments you got on, they're, they're you know, that's awesome. I mean, you got the nicest suits known to man. Very expensive shoes. People would look at you, and the interesting thing about Laodicea, it was famous for one type of wool, and that was black wool. He's saying, look, you need to trade in your blackness of sin for my whiteness of righteousness. And he's not talking about the color of anything other than those two diametrically opposed shades, okay? So please don't read anything into that. He's saying, look, sin, righteousness. You want my righteousness. You need to buy the right thing with your spiritual capital. Did you know that every one of you is an investor? You have time, you have talent, and you have treasure. And you are investing it somewhere. The question is in what? And in whom? You're spending it someplace. You're putting your capital to work somewhere. You're putting your time to work somewhere. Is it in serving the Lord? You're putting your talents, your gifts, the things that God's given you, some of them even natural, the, things that he, the way he made you. You're putting those two works somewhere for some purpose. Is it for earthly gain or is it for godly good? And you are putting your treasure to work. 
No matter how little treasure, if it's the widow's might, you're still putting that treasure to work somewhere. He's saying, look, I'm going to give you the capital to purchase what you need. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That is a gift of God. It's not of yourself. You can't boast about it. I'll give it to you, but you've got to buy the right stuff. And by the way, Jesus' mall is open 24-7. You can go in and buy all you need every day. You can dial them up at 2 in the morning, say, I need some more righteousness. You got it. Because it comes to us by grace. Prophet Isaiah so understood that there in Isaiah 55, 1, that it would be everyone who thirsts, come to the water, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? Because he takes care of his kids. Always has, always will. We get his goods by going to him. Give you a little secret to spiritual prosperity. Not prosperity doctrine, but spiritual prosperity. If you get rid of your garbage, you got more room for gold. Amen? You get rid of your garbage, you put off the old man, you got more room for the new man, you got more room for gold. So if you want to be rich, get rid of your garbage. See, the church at Laodicea was trying to hang on to the garbage and the gold. It's like, I know my gold kind of stinks. It's because I've been keeping it in the garbage. You've met Christians like that, haven't you? Well, they got bumper stickers. Lots of them. They'll even tell you they're safe. They even have a 27-pound Bible. You know the ones I'm talking about. They're like this thick. They belong on a desk someplace in somebody's library. They lug it around. Oh, the weight of the word. It's heavy, brother. (laughs) The free gift of God is life eternal. It's a free gift. He says, look, I'll give you more of what will satisfy you. Spend wisely. I don't know about you, but I'm not fond of spankings. Don't like spankings. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten, and therefore be zealous to repent. He gives us, you probably all had parents that were like that. You knew exactly what the rules were. Exactly. Don't do this, do do that. And so the choice was yours. Here's what will happen if you do that thing. Isn't it crazy how, well, you're not going to spank me, are you? Well, yes, because you're an idiot. (laughs) And you did exactly what I told you not to do. I need to change the fact that you think that's okay. Because that's going to harm you. This is going to be really bad for you. This is not what we want for you as your parents. God does exactly the same thing. He says, don't do that. 
Then he gives you free will to go ahead and do it if you want. So the choice is yours. The choice is mine. So why do we get upset when he chastens us? Because he's chastening us because he loves us. And he rebukes us because he loves us. Hebrews is very clear on this. Read that basic first form of education, if you will. He chastens those whom he loves. You're not even one of his kids if he doesn't chasten you. If God hasn't dealt with you on something in your life, you might want to ask yourself the question if you're actually one of his kids. Because I know for me as a pastor, God deals with me because he loves me. He even deals with my thoughts. Doesn't he do that with you? You're driving down the road and you're doing something and all you're just thinking weirdness. I mean, just those thoughts come into your head because you're a human being and you're a sinner who's saved by grace and all of a sudden you're it's like, oh well, yeah, you know, that can be good. And he's going, Jeff, that's sin. Well, you know, Lord, it was for those good, but not for you know, and you go through your gymnastics with God. And all of a sudden, you, you hear the doof, 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 doof of the flat tire. I told you. <laughs> Sorry, God. I'm listening. You ever had those things where you know God's speaking to you? Don't do that, Jeff. Don't go that way. Well, it worked for me last time. Anybody else bargain with God? I think most human beings bargain with God. Well, I'll give you two of these. If you give, can I just do that? I'm going to go to church twice this week. I remember as a young person those very thoughts. Well, you know, I'm not going to go this week because I want to go to this party. I'm going to send, but I'll go twice next week. And it'll be, we'll be good, right? Never works out that way, does it? Does it? All of a sudden, the Lord's going, mm, no, no, I actually wanted you to go to church twice anyway. That whole thing, that was you bargaining with you, not with me. He rebukes us by the word of his mouth and by his action. He chastens us or trains us. And therefore, he says, look, just turn around. It's okay. I'm knocking at the door. I want to come in. I want to meet with you. I want to eat with you. I want to sit down and have a supper with you. I, I want to go and just have that amazing meal. I want to have that time of fellowship. And so the Lord says to this final church, look, you need to turn around. You need to stop being cold, and you need to start being hot. You need to flan fan that flame back up. And he's knocking, he's saying, look, I'm not going to break down the barrier, but I'm knocking. I'm not going to tear down the wall that we put up, but I'm knocking. And I'm talking. When God is knocking and God is talking, it's because he wants in. He's saying, look, I, I want to come in with you. But it's our responsibility to make him welcome. We've got to open the door. We've got to say, look, Lord, you're welcome. And whatever you've got to do in your house, because the word's very clear, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Amen?
Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We need to turn the church back over to Jesus and say, look, there's something in here you need to get rid of, then we're, we're going to help you move it out. If there's stuff in here that should, should there's things that need to be inside, then we want you to move them in. He's knocking. We want to invite him in and say, look, God, we want you to feel welcome at the dinner table. You've all, probably all been to those meals, and they're usually with family. Because you're a Christian, you're sitting down, maybe you got, like I do, I have some unsaved family. And you sit down at the table, and you feel like the odd person out. Amen? Just like, oh my goodness. You don't want that reverse. You do not want the Lord feeling like the odd person out at your table. He should be the guest of honor. He should be welcome at every single thing in your life. If you got it going on, he should be invited. He's saying, look, one day uh, I'm going to have you ruling and reigning with me, so let's get something squared away right here and right now. You're an overcomer. One day you're going to spend an awful lot of time with Jesus, like all day, every day. And he's saying to the church right now, let's, let's square this all away. Because we are going to be victorious, and we are going to rule in his kingdom. We are going to spend eternity with him. And so he says, one last time, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, these messages, cumulatively, were to the formal church of Ephesus, who lost their first love, was to the fearful church that caved into pressure, the church at Smyrna. It was to the faulty church, the doctrinally defective church at Pergamos. It was to the flat-out false church at Thyatira. They had moral problems inside the church, and they didn't deal with them. To the fruitless church at Sardis, who was temporarily dead in a spiritual sense because they just were producing nothing for the kingdom. And our church last week, the feeble church of Philadelphia, in danger of losing their crown because they gave up. Wonderful things or just got tired. And then finally, the church that was focused on stuff instead of the Savior. The answer to all of them is the same. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Turn around, and where it's wrong, let him fix it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful tonight for your goodness expressed to us in your grace and your mercy and your long-suffering and your gentleness and your tenderness and your care. God, that you have struggled along with us as we have struggled. God, you've been in the midst of every detail of every church from the very founding to this very day. And Lord, I believe you're crying out to all churches across this globe that we would stop being lukewarm and start being what we're supposed to be, which is salt and light and on fire and filled with the Spirit and abounding in good works because that's what you created us for. And so, Lord, tonight as we draw this service to a close and we 
cast our cares upon you, for you care for us. Lord, would you meet every need? God, I want to pray if there's anyone here tonight. God, as the prayer team comes forward, as we seek your face, Lord, and as we worship you this last time this evening, if there's anyone here who's never committed their life to you, they are that person about whom it could be said that you're standing at the door and knocking. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, convince them of their need for a Savior, for the fact that they are a sinner who needs your grace. And so, God, as we gather to pray, would they come and pray to receive you, the greatest gift we could ever be given, or the gift of eternal life. And your word says that simply to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. It begins a process that takes a lifetime as we're sanctified and matured. But it starts with a single step. God, we're grateful for your grace. Thank you for abounding in mercy towards us. Lord, as your people, we praise you. We thank you. We bless you. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen.